You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called Business Frontiers, Social Responsibility, Sustainable Development, and Economic Justice. Holistic Business in Search of Synergy The Phoenix of Business For me, the image of the phoenix from Native American Indian mythology rising up from the ashes of its dead body symbolizes our potential to transform the dying metaphor of business as a rational machine into a new metaphor, business as a living whole, and that's W-H-O-L-E. This idea arose out of one of my business lectures at university some years ago, in which Peters and Waterman's famed bestseller, In Search of Excellence, was under discussion. As it happened, I was concurrently reading Jan Smuts's scientific and philosophic treatise, Holism and Evolution, and was struck by the conceptual parallels between the rational mode of business which Peters and Waterman were criticizing and the restrictive mechanism which Smuts attributed to the scientific community of the 1920s. Since Smuts regarded his theory of holism, H-O-L-I-S-M, as the necessary antidote to the analytical methods which prevailed, I began to wonder about its remedial potential for the ailing business theory of the present day. This episode is the fruit of my contemplation along those lines namely how holism might be applied as a new framework for thinking about business. Mechanism in the Science of the 1920s Smut's starting point in the 1920s was his conviction that the prevailing view of science was both outdated and limiting. He was referring, of course, to the commonly held belief that the universe was, I quote, a system or combination whose action can be mathematically calculated from those of its component parts, end quote. In more simple terms, it was Newton's concept of the clockwork universe, where when isolated elements or factors of the complex situation have been separately studied, they are recombined in order to reconstitute the original situation. Smuts's main criticism of this reductionistic view of reality which he called mechanism, centered on its failure to recognize the countless synergies which exist in the world around and within us, as well as its inability to account for the process of creative evolution. In his own words, it was a fixed dogma that there could be no more in the effect than there was in the cause. Hence, creativity and real progress became impossible. In its analytical pursuit of the part, therefore, science had missed the whole and thus tended to reduce the world to dead aggregations rather than to the real living holes which make up nature. Smut's belief was that in studying and interpreting nature, we need to be faithful to our experience of her and that our experience is largely fluid and plastic, meaning flexible with little that is rigid and much that is indefinite about it. His recommendation was that we should go as far as possible to withstand the temptation to pour this plastic experience into the moulds of our hard and narrow preconceived notions. Rationalism in business in the 1980s. 
This diagnosis by smuts of the malaise infecting science of the 1920s bears striking resemblance, we find, to the critique by Peters and Waterman of the rationalist view, which was dominating business thinking in the 1980s. In a sense, this is not surprising, given that both stem from what management authority Peter Drucker called the Cartesian worldview after René Descartes and his early 17th century vision of the universe as a grand machine, which Drucker discusses in his 1959 book, The Landmarks of Tomorrow. The application of this concept to business owes its theoretical foundations to American engineer Frederick Taylor and German sociologist Max Weber, who towards the end of the 1800s introduced their ideas of scientific management and bureaucratic organization, respectively. These were subsequently enshrined by the likes of Ford Motor Company and others in the 20th century, and in many cases taken to an extreme following the explosive growth of the high-tech industry. The classic production line is a case in point. We find, therefore, a dominant philosophy of business in the 1980s, largely still present today, which could be described as management by numbers, and which includes the following popular notions. Success in terms of short-term profitability growth and return to financial shareholders, rational decision-making supported by quantitative analysis, increased productivity through measurements, controls and monetary incentives, and organizations and communication in the form of hierarchies. Peters and Waterman's critique of this rationalistic view of business concerns its lack of appreciation for the qualitative dimensions of management as well as its limited understanding of the complexity of the human being. As we quoted from them before in a previous episode, the problem with the rationalist view of organizing people, they say, is that people are not very rational. To fit Taylor's old model or today's organizational charts, humans are simply designed wrong, or vice versa according to our arguments here. In fact, if our understanding of the current state of psychology is even close to correct. Humans are the ultimate study in conflict and paradox. End quote. Smuts's Integrative Theory of Holism Given the similarity between the old models described and the new, it is my conviction that Smuts has some important insights to offer in the search for a new vision of business. These are to be found in his theory of holism, which I shall attempt to summarize. In essence, holism, from the Greek holos, H-O-L-O-S, meaning whole, W-H-O-L-E, involved a synthesis between Darwin's theory of evolution, Einstein's theory of relativity, and Smuts's own reflections on the evolution of matter, life, and mind. The result was a revolutionary concept with far-reaching implications. What Smuts claimed to have identified was nothing less than the ultimate synthetic, ordering, organizing, regulative activity in the universe, which accounts for all the structural groupings and syntheses in it. At the heart of this idea is Smuts's concept of wholes, which he believed to be the real units of nature. He describes their character as a unity of parts which is so close and intense as to become more than the sum of its parts, 
In other words, they are synergistic. He goes on to say that every organism, every plant or animal is a whole with a certain internal organization and measure of self-direction and an individual-specific character of its own. This is true of the lowest microorganism, no less than the most highly developed and complex human personality. Implicit in this concept of holes, Smuts argues, is also the principle of evolution. He says there is a creative activity, progress and development of holes, and the successive phases of this creative evolution are marked by the development of ever more complex and significant holes. Describing the process in more detail, he says, At the start, the fact of the structure is all-important in holes, but as we ascend the scale of holes, we see structure becoming secondary to function. We see function becoming the dominant feature of the whole. We see it as a correlation of all the activities of the structure and affecting new syntheses which are more and more of a creative character. In this sense... He refers to mechanism as simply an earlier, cruder form of holism. The question is, can these concepts be applied to business? Well, as it happens, Smuts repeatedly implied that such an application would not be inappropriate. What is generally not recognized, he said, is that the conception of holes applies in a sense to human associations like the state and to the creations of the human spirit in all its greatest and most significant activities. So it is to business as a specific form of human association that I now turn in order to attempt to apply holism as a new paradigm. The holistic individual. The first level of business to which a holistic view needs to be applied is that of the individual. As previously implied, the old view of business regards employees as rational entities which are expected to perform in mechanical ways to further the materialistic goals of the company. In contrast, Smuts's view of the human being, as expressed through personality, was as the highest and completest of all wholes. It is interesting now to note that while this idea has yet to be fully applied in business, the idea itself is not new to the discipline. In fact, thinking along these lines began to emerge in the 1930s following Elton Mayo's now-famed Hawthorne experiments, which showed the importance of psychological factors in employee behavior. Building on this, Douglas McGregor, in his book The Human Side of Enterprise, challenged the idea that authority is the central, indispensable means of managerial control by introducing his theory why of motivation. Then, in 1954, Abraham Maslow, in his book Motivation and Personality, made his invaluable contribution in the form of his hierarchy of needs, which incidentally led him later to the concept of Eusychian management, in which the being values of his hierarchy of needs, such as self-actualization, were more explicitly recognized. Another significant development which should have advanced the recognition of the whole individual occurred in the 1960s and 1970s when 25 patients around the world underwent split brain surgery for the treatment of severe epilepsy. 
The unexpected results showed that the brain's right and left hemispheres can operate independently and display significantly different characteristics, the left brain controlling essentially rational and reductionistic activity and the right brain performing more of an integrative and creative function. Canadian business researcher Henry Minsberg was the first to spot the business application and explained its significance in his 1976 article in Harvard Business Review called Planning on the Left Side and Managing on the Right. And I quote, One fact recurs repeatedly in all of this management research. The key managerial processes are enormously complex and mysterious, drawing on the vaguest of information and using the least articulated of mental processes. These processes seem to be more relational and holistic than ordered and sequential, and more intuitive than intellectual. They seem to be most characteristic of right hemisphere activity. End quote. The point is that despite all the evidence and frameworks supporting the notion of the holistic individual, business has yet to respond in a meaningful way. Employees are still regarded as inputs to production and expenses in business rather than creative beings and assets. People are still expected to leave their emotions, intuition, dreams, fears, family and community concerns and a myriad of other qualities characteristic of being fully human outside of the workplace. And as workers, they are still expected to be motivated and inspired by monetary incentives, increasing productivity and profit-making, as opposed to personal development, genuine service to others and the search for meaning in their lives. The time is long overdue for business to be serving humans rather than the other way around. The whole organization. The other level to which holistic thinking can be applied is that of the organization. For example, does Smut's idea of mechanism being an earlier, cruder form of holism not also apply to business? After all, it is indeed as a result of increasing complexity as per its original meaning of an increase in interconnections or relationships, that the rational model of organization is no longer working. This theme has in fact already been pursued by Dutch psychiatrist Bernard Leverhut in his book Developmental Management, in which he conceives of the development of organizations through three phases, the pioneering phase, the phase of differentiation, in other words, the rational model, and finally, the phase of integration, the holistic model. Inherent in this new holistic organization is the idea of flattening the hierarchy and a move towards the network type organization which recognizes its composite holes more fully, the team-based culture, as well as organizing according to process as opposed to functional silos, is also part of the move towards a more holistic structure which is more consistent with Smuts's notion of synergy than its mechanistic predecessor. This thinking needs to be extended beyond the internal organization. For instance, Rosabeth Moskanta, professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, says in her books When Giants Learn to Dance that in order to survive in the corporate Olympics of the future, companies need to pool their resources with others, ally to exploit an opportunity or link systems in a partnership. 
In short, they need to become better pals with other organizations, from venture collaborators to suppliers, service contractors, customers, and even unions. Another interesting derivative from Smuts's holism could be his concept of fields of influence, which he describes as the natural shading of continuities of holes, as opposed to enclosing things or people in hard contours which are purely artificial. The latter is exactly what business has been guilty of in the past, both with regards to its people, as we've already highlighted, and its relationship to its external environment. Indeed, it's only recently that business is beginning to think in terms of its responsibility to all its stakeholders, whether they be customers, suppliers, employees, communities, or future generations, as opposed to simply its managers and financial shareholders. Even so, much of this remains superficial and inadequate, as in the case of the destruction of the natural environment. Paul Hawken, author of The Ecology of Commerce, makes this point. If every company on the planet were to adopt the best environmental practices of the leading companies, the world would still be moving towards sure degradation and collapse. The reason, says Hawken, is that rather than a management problem, we have a design problem, a flaw that runs through all business. And to create an enduring society, business will be required to create a system of commerce and production where every act is inherently sustainable and restorative. Ruzaburu Kaku, Japanese chairman of the Canon Group of Companies, is perhaps one of the few who has taken this holistic understanding to its natural conclusion in thinking about business. He explains that in the highest stage of evolution of a corporation, a global consciousness emerges, and the corporation sees itself contributing to the whole of humankind. This evolutionary perspective is important in applying Smuts's holism to business. It highlights the need for what Peter Senge, professor of systems thinking at MIT's business school, calls in his fifth discipline the creation of the learning organization. In fact, Senge's fifth discipline, which is systems thinking, is nothing other than a subsequent iteration of the principles of holism. In Smuts's term, the message is the same. For while the tendency in the universe is towards higher and more complex holes, degeneration also occurs when there are holes that are weak, incohate, and these must be eliminated. Therefore, those organizations least able to transform themselves continually into more and more holistic entities will be those which have failed to adapt and will die. It is, after all, according to Smuts, the fundamental law of the universe. Survival of the Holist.